The Ten Commandments, A Guide for Living by Arthur W. Pink. Introductory Considerations. There are two things which are indispensable to the Christian life, a clear knowledge of duty and a conscious practice of the same corresponding to his knowledge. As we can have no well-grounded hope of eternal salvation without obedience, so we can have no sure rule of obedience without knowledge. Although there may be knowledge without practice, yet there cannot possibly be practice of God's will without knowledge. And therefore, that we might be informed what we ought to do and what we ought to avoid, it is pleased the ruler and judge of all the earth to prescribe us laws for the regulating of our actions. When we had miserably defaced the law of nature, originally written in our hearts so that many of its commandments were no longer legible, it seemed good to the Lord to transcribe that law in the scriptures. And in the Ten Commandments we have a summary of the same. Let us first consider promulgation. The manner in which the Decalogue was formally delivered to Israel was very awe-inspiring, yet replete with valuable instruction for us. First, the people were commanded to spend two days in preparing themselves by a typical cleansing from all external pollutions before they were ready to stand in the presence of God, Exodus, Exodus 19, 10, 11, teaching us that serious preparation of heart and mind must be made before we come to wait before God and his ordinances and receive a word at his mouth, and that if Israel must sanctify themselves in order to appear before God at Sinai, how much more must we sanctify ourselves that we may be meant to appear before God in heaven? Next, the mount on which God appears was to be fenced, with a strict prohibition that none should presume to approach the holy mount, 19, 12, and 13, teaching us that God is infinitely superior to us and do our utmost reverence and the strictness of his law. Next, we have a description of the fearful manifestation in which Jehovah appeared to deliver his law, Exodus 19, 18, and 19, designed to affect them with an awe for his authority and to signify that if God were so terrible in the giving of the law, much more will he be so when he comes to judge us for our, its violation. When God had delivered the ten words, so greatly affected were the people that they entreated Moses to act as a daysman and interpreter between God and them. 20, 18, 19, denoting that when the law is delivered to us directly by God, it is in itself the ministration of condemnation and death, at, but, it is, but as it is delivered to us by the mediator, Christ, we may hear and observe it. See Galatians 3.19, 1 Corinthians 9.21, Galatians 6.2. Accordingly, Moses went up into the mountain and received the law, inscribed by God's own fingers upon two tablets of stone, signifying that our hearts are naturally so hard that none but the finger of God did make any impression of his law upon them. Those tables were broken by Moses in his holy zeal, Exodus 32.19, and God wrote them a second time, 34.1, prefiguring the law of nature written on our hearts at the creation, broken when we fell in Adam, rewritten in our hearts at regeneration, Hebrews 10.16. But some may ask, has not the law been fully abrogated by the coming of Christ into the world? Would you bring us under the heavy yoke of bondage, which none has ever been able to bear? Does not the New Testament expressly declare that we were not under the law, but under grace, that Christ was made under the law to free his people therefrom? Is not an attempt to overawe men's conscience by the authority of the Decalogue a legalistic imposition altogether at variance with the Christian liberty which the Savior has brought in by his obedience unto death? 
We answer, so far from the law being abolished by the coming of Christ into this world, he himself emphatically stated, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, the enforcers thereof. I am come not to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Matthew 5:17 and 18. True, the Christian is not under the law as a covenant of works, nor as a ministration of condemnation, but he is under it as a rule of life and a means of sanctification. Second, let us consider their uniqueness. First, in that this revelation of God at Sinai, which was to serve all for all coming ages as the grand expression of his holiness and the summation of man's duty, was attended with such awe-inspiring phenomena that the very manner of their publication plainly shows that God himself assigned to the duck lodge peculiar importance. The Ten Commandments were uttered by God in an audible voice with the fearful adjuncts of clouds and darkness, thunderings and lightnings, and the sound of trumpet, and they were the only parts of divine revelation so spoken. None of the ceremonial or civil precepts were thus distinguished. Those ten words, and they alone, were written by the finger of God upon tables of stone, and they alone were deposited in the holy ark for safekeeping. Thus, in the unique honor conferred upon the Decalogue itself, we may perceive its paramount importance in the divine government. Third, let us consider their springs, which is love. Far too little emphasis has been placed upon the divine preface. And God spake all those words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Whatever an awful grandeur and solemn majesty attended the promulgation of the law, nevertheless it had its foundations in love, proceeding from God in the character of their gracious Redeemer as well as their righteous Lord, which, of course, embodied the all-important principle that redemption carries in its bosom a conformity to the divine order. We must then recognize this relation of the Decalogue as well as those who received it as in him who gave it to the grand principle of love, for only thus could there be a conformity between a redeeming God and a redeemed people. The words at the close of the second commandment show mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments, make it crystal clear that the only obedience which God accepts is that which proceeds from an affectionate heart. The Savior declared that the requirements of the law were all summed up in loving God with all our hearts and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Fourth, let us consider their perpetuity. That log is binding upon every man in each succeeding generation is evident from many considerations. First, as a necessary and unchanging expression of God's gratitude, its authority over all moral agents becomes inevitable. The character of God himself must change before the law, the rule of his government, could be revoked. It was the law given to man in his creation from which his subsequent apostasy could not relieve him. The moral law is founded on relations which subsist wherever there are creatures endowed with reason and violation. Second, Christ himself rendered unto the law perfect obedience, thereby leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Third, the apostle to the Gentiles specifically raised a question, Do we then make void the law through faith? And answered, God forbid, yea, we establish the law, Romans 3.31. Finally, the perpetuity of the law appears in God's writing it in the heart of his people as a new birth. Fifth, we pass on to say a word upon the number of the commandments of the moral law, the ten being indicative of completeness. It, this is emphasized in Scripture by their being expressively designated the ten words, Exodus 34:28 in the margin 
which intimates that they were formed by themselves an entire whole made up of the necessary and no more than the necessary complement of its parts. It was on account of this symbolic import of the number that the plagues of Egypt were precisely that many, forming as such a complete round of divine judgments, and it was for the same reason that the transgressions of the Hebrews in the wilderness were allowed to proceed until the same number had been reached when they had sinned these ten times, number 1421, they had filled up the measure of their iniquities. Hence, too, the consecration of tithes or tents, the whole increase was represented by ten, and one of these was set apart for the Lord in token of all being derived from him and held for him. Six, we consider their division. As God never acts without good reason, we may be sure he had some particular design in writing the law upon the two tables. This design is evident on the surface for the very substance of these precepts, which comprehends the sum of righteousness, separates them into two distinct groups, the first respecting our obligations Godward and the second our obligations manward, the former treating of what belongs particularly to the worship of God, the latter the duties of charity in our social relations. Utterly worthless is that righteousness which abstains from acts of violence against our fellows while we are withheld from the majesty of heaven, the glory which is his due. Equally vain is it to pretend to the worshippers God if we refuse those offices of love which are due to our neighbors. Abstaining from fornication is more than neutralized if I blasphemously take the Lord's name in vain whilst the most bacterious worship is rejected from him while I steal or lie. Nor do the duties of divine worship fill up the first table because they are, as Calvin terms them, the head of religion. But as he rightly adds, they are the very soul of it, constituting all its life and vigor. For without the fear of God, men preserve no equity and love among themselves. If the principle of piety be lacking, whatever justice, mercy, and temperance man may practice among themselves, it is vain in the sight of heaven. Whereas if God be accorded his rightful place in our hearts and lives, venerating him as the arbiter of right and wrong, this will constrain us to deal equitably with our fellows. Opinion has varied as to how the ten words were delivered or were divided, as to whether the fifth ended the first table or began the second. Personally, we incline decidedly to the former because parents stand to us in the place of God while we are young, because in Scripture parents are never regarded as neighbors on an equality, and because each of the five commandments contain the phrase, The Lord thy God, which is not found in any other remaining five. Seventh, let's consider their spirituality. The law is spiritual, Romans 7.14, not only because it proceeds from the spiritual legislator, but because it demands something more than the mere obedience of external conduct, namely the internal obedience of the heart to its uttermost extent. It is only as we perceive the decalogue extends to thoughts and desires of the heart that we discover how much there is in ourselves in direct opposition to it. God requires truth in the innermost parts, Psalm 51.6, and prohibits the smallest deviation from holiness even in our imaginations. The fact that the law takes cognizance of our most secret disposition and intentions, that it demands the holy regulation of our mind, affections, and will, and that it requires all of our obedience to proceed from love, at once demonstrates its divine origin. No other law ever professed to govern the spirit of man but he who reaches, who searches the heart claims nothing less. The high spirituality of the law was evidenced by Christ when he insisted that an unchaste look was adultery, 
that malignant anger was a breach of the Sixth Commandment, eighth, we consider their office. The first use of the moral law is to reveal the only righteousness which is acceptable to God and at the same time discover to us our unrighteousnesses. Sin has blinded our judgment, filled us with self-love, and wrought in us a false sense of our own sufficiency. But if we seriously compare ourselves with the high and holy demands of God's law, we are made aware of our groundless insolence, convicted of our pollution and guilt, and become conscious of our lack of strength to do what is required of us. Thus the law is like a mirror in which we behold our impotence, our iniquity which proceeded from it, and the consequences of both, our obnoxiousness to the curse, Calvin. Its second use is to restrain the wicked who, though they have no concern for God's glory and no thought of pleasing him, yet refrain from many outward acts of sin through fear of its terrible penalty. Though this commends them not to God, it is a benefit to the community in which they live. Third, the law of the believer's rule of life to direct him to keep him dependent upon divine grace. Ninth, we consider its sanctions. Not only has the Lord brought us under an infinite obligation for having redeemed us from sin's slavery, not only has he given his people such a sight and sense of his awe-inspiring majesty as to beget in them a reverence for his sovereignty, but he has been pleased to provide additional inducements for us to yield to his authority, gladly performing his bidding and shrink from abhorrence from what he forbids by sojourning promises and threatening, saying, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generations of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thus we are informed that those who perform his bidding shall not labor in vain, as rebels shall not escape with impunity. The tenth and final we consider their interpretation. Thy commandment, said the psalmist, is exceedingly broad, 119.96. So comprehensive is the moral law that its authority extends to all the moral actions of our lives. The rest of the scriptures are but a commentary on the Ten Commandments, either exciting us to obedience by arguments, alluring us by promises, restraining from transgressions by threatenings, or spurring us to the one and withholding us from the other by examples recorded in the historical portions. Rightly understood, the precepts of the New Testament are but explications, amplifications, and applications of the Ten Commandments. It should be carefully observed that in the things expressly commanded or forbidden, there is always implied more than is formally stated. But to be more specific, first in each commandment, the chief duty or sin is taken as representative of all the lesser duties or sins, and the overt act is taken as representative of all related affections. Whatever specific sin be named, all the sins of the same kind with all the causes and provocations thereon are forbidden, for Christ expounded the Sixth Commandments as condemning not only actual murder but also rash anger in the heart. Second, when any vice is forbidden, the contrary virtue is enjoined, and when any virtue is commanded, the contrary vice is condemned. As in the third, God forbids the taking of his name in vain, so by necessary consequence the hallowing of his name is commanded, and as in the Eighth, forbid stealing, so it requires a contrary duty, earning our living and paying for what we receive. Ephesians 4.28 The First Commandment And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. Exodus 20.1 and 2 
this preface to the moral law is to be regarded as having equal respect to all the Ten Commandments and not to the first one only, containing as it does the most weighty arguments to enforce our obedience to them. As it is the custom of kings and governors to prefix their names and titles before the edicts set forth by them to obtain the more attention and veneration to what they publish, so with the great God, the King of Kings, about to proclaim a law for his subjects that he might affect them with a deeper reverence for his authority and make them more afraid to transgress those statutes which are enacted by his so mighty a potentate and so glorious a majesty blazing his august name upon him. What has just been pointed out above is clearly established by those awe-inspiring words of Moses to Israel, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God, Deuteronomy 28:58. I am the Lord thy God. The word for Lord is Jehovah, who is the supreme, eternal, and self-existent one, the force of which is, as it were, spelled out for us, in which was and is and is to come, Revelation 4.8. The word for God is Iliom, the plural of Iliah. For though he be one in nature, yet he is three in persons. And this Jehovah, the supreme object of worship, is thy God, because in the past he was thy creator, in the present he is thy ruler, in the future he will, lay, he will be thy judge. In addition, he is the God of his elect by covenant relationship, and therefore their Redeemer. Thus our obedience to his laws enforced by these considerations. His absolute authority to beget fear in us, he is the Lord our God. His benefits and mercies to engage love, which brought thee out of the antitypical house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other God before me. Exodus 23 is the first commandment. Let us briefly consider its meaning. We notice a singular number, thou, not ye, addressed to each person separately because each of us is concerned therein. Thou shalt have no other gods. As a force of thou shalt own, possess, seek, desire, love, or worship none other. No other gods. They are called such not because they are either by nature or by office, Psalms 82.6, but because the corrupt hearts of men make and esteem them such as in whose god is their belly, Philippians 3.19. Before me or my face, the force of which is best ascertained by his words to Abraham, walk before me and be thou perfect or upright, Genesis 17.1. Conduct thyself in the realization that thou art ever in my presence, that mine eye is continually upon thee, thus is very searching. We are so apt to rest contented if we can but approve ourselves before men and maintain a fair show of godliness outwardly, but Jehovah searches our innermost being, and we cannot conceal from him any secret lust or hidden idol. Let us next consider the positive duty enjoined by this first commandment. Briefly stated, it is this. Thou shalt choose, worship, and serve Jehovah as thy God, and him only. Being who he is, thy maker and ruler, the sum of all excellency, the supreme object of worship, he admits of no rival, and none can vie with him. See, then, the absolute reasonableness of this demand and the madness of contravening it. The commandment requires from us a dispensation and conduct suited to the relation in which we stand to the Lord our, as our God, as the only adequate object of our love, and the only one able to satisfy the soul. 
it requires that we have a love for him stronger than all other affections, that we take him for our highest portion, that we serve and obey him supremely. It requires that all these services and acts of worship which we render unto true God be made with the utmost sincerity and devotion implied in the before me, excluding negligence on the one hand and hypocrisy on the other. In pointing out the duties required by this commandment, we can do no better than quote the Westminster Confession of Faith. They are are the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God. First Chronicle 28.9, Deuteronomy 26.17, and so forth. And to worship and glorify him accordingly, Psalm 95, 6 and 7, Matthew 4, 10. By, may, by thinking, Malachi 3.16, meditating, Psalm 63.6, remembering, Ecclesiastes 12.1, highly esteeming, Psalm 71.19, honoring, Malachi 1.6, adoring, Isaiah 45.23, choosing, Joshua 25.15, loving, Deuteronomy 6.5, desiring, Psalm 73.25, fearing of him, Isaiah 13, believing him, Exodus 14:31, trusting Isaiah 26:4, hoping Psalm 103:7, delighting Psalm 37:4, and rejoicing in him, Psalm 32:11, being zealous for him, Romans 12:11, calling upon him, giving all praise and thanks, Philippians 4:6, and yielding all obedience and submission to him with the whole man, Jeremiah 7:23. Being careful in all things to please him, 1 John 3.22, and sorrowful when in anything he is offended, Jeremiah 31.18, Psalm 119.136, and walking humbly with him, Micah 6.8. Those duties may be summarized in these chief ones. First, the diligent and lifelong seeking after a fuller knowledge of God as he is revealed in his word and works, for we cannot worship an unknown God. Second, the loving of God with all our faculties and strength, which consists of an earnest panning after him and deep joy in him and a holy zeal for him. Third, the fearing of God, which consists of an awe of his majesty, supreme reverence for his authority and a desire for his glory, as the love of God is the motive spring of obedience, so the fear of God is a great deterrent of disobedience. Fourth, the worshiping of God according to his appointments. The principal aids to which are the study of and meditation upon the word, prayer, and putting into practice what we are taught. Thou shalt have no other God before me. That is, thou shalt not give unto any one or anything in heaven or on earth that inward heart affiance, loving veneration, and dependence upon which is due only to the true God. Thou shalt not transfer to another that which belongs alone unto him. Nor must we attempt to divide them between God and another, for no man can serve two masters. The great sins forbidden by this commandment are, first, willful ignorance of God and his will, though despising those means by which we may acquaint ourselves with him. Second, atheism or the denial of God. Third, idolatry or the setting up of false and fictitious gods. Fourth, disobedience and self-will or the open defiance of God. Fifth, all inordinate and immoderate affections are the setting of our hearts and minds upon other objects. We are idolaters and transgressors of this first commandment who manufacture a God out of a figment of their mind. Such are the Unitarians who deny that there are three persons in the Godhead. Such are the Romanists who supplicate the Savior's mother and affirm that the Pope has power to forgive sins. Such are the vast majority of Armenians who, have, who believe in a disappointed and defeated deity. 
such are the sensual Epicureans, Philippians 3.19, for there are inward idols as well as external. These men have set up their idols in their hearts, Ezekiel 14.3, covetousness, which is idolatry, Colossians 3.5, and by parity of reason, so are all immoderate desires. That object to which we render those desires and services which are due alone to the Lord is our God, whether it be self, gold, fame, pleasure, or friends. What is your God? To what is your life devoted? The second commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them for I the Lord thy God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments Exodus 20 4 through 6 Though this second commandment be closely related to the first yet there is a clear distinction between them which may be expressed in a variety of ways as the first commandment concerns the choice of a true God as our God, so the second tells of our actual profession of his worship. As the former fixes the object, so this fixes the mode of religious worship. As in the first commandment, Jehovah has proclaimed himself to be the true God, so here he reveals his nature and how he is to be honored. Thou shalt not make to thee any graven image. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them. This commandment strikes against a desire, or we should say a disease, which is deeply rooted in the human heart, namely to bring in some aids to the worship of God beyond those which he has appointed. Material aids, things which can be cognizized by the senses. Nor is the reason for this far to seek. God is incorporeal, invisible, and can be realized only by spiritual principle, and that principle being dead, in fallen man, he naturally seeks that which accords with his carnality. But how different is it with those who have been quickened to the Holy, by the Holy Spirit? No one who truly knows God as a living reality needs any image to aid his devotions. None who enjoys daily communion with Christ requires any picture of him to help him pray and adore. He conceives of him by faith and not by fancy. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness. It is a main... It is a manifest straining of this precept to make it condemn all statutory and paintings. It is not the ingenuity of making, but the stupidity and the worshipping of them which is condemned, as is clear from the thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, and from the fact that God himself shortly afterwards ordered Israel to make two cherubim of gold of beaten work for the mercy seat, Exodus 28.18, and later the serpent of brass. Since God is a spiritual, invisible, omnipotent being, to represent him as a material and limited form is a falsehood and an insult to his majesty. Under the most extreme corrupt mode image worship, all erroneous modes of divine homage are here forbidden. The legitimate worship of God must not be profaned by any superstitious rites. The second commandment is but the negative way of saying God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, John 4.24. If it be asked what are the duties here required, the answer is the receiving, observing, and keeping pure the entire 
all and entire all such religious worship and ordinances that God has instituted in His Word. Deuteronomy 32:46-47, Matthew 28:20, 20, Acts 2:42, First Timothy 6:13 and 14. Particularly prayer and thanksgiving in the name of Christ. Philippians 4:6, Ephesians 5:20. The reading and preaching and hearing of the Word. Deuteronomy 17:18-19, Acts 15:20. 2 Timothy 4, 2, and so forth. The administration and receiving of the sacraments, Matthew 28, 19, 1 Corinthians 11, 21, 30, church government and discipline, Matthew 18, 15, 17, 16, 19, 1 Corinthians 5, the ministry and maintenance thereof, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, and so forth. Religious fasting, 1 Corinthians 8, 5. Swearing by the name of God, Deuteronomy 6, 13. And bowing unto him, Isaiah 19, 21, Psalm 76, 11. As also the disapproving, detesting, opposing all false worship, Acts 16, 16, 17. And according to each one's place and calling, removing it, and all monuments of idolatry, Deuteronomy 7, 5, Isaiah 30, 22. Westminster Confession of Faith. To which we would simply add, there is required of us a diligent preparation before we enter upon any holy exercise, Ecclesiastic 5.1, and a right dispensation of mind in the act itself. For example, we must not hear or read the word just to satisfy curiosity, but that we may learn how better to please God. In the forbidding of images, God, by parity of reason, prohibits all other modes and means of worship not appointed by him. Every form of worship, even of the true God himself, which is contrary to or diverse from that which the Lord has prescribed in his word and which is called by the apostle will worship, Colossians 2.23, together with all corruptions of the true worship of God and all inclinations of heart and to superstition in the service of God are reprehended by this commandment. No scope whatever is here permitted the invented faculty of man. Christ condemned the religious washing of hands because it was a human addition to the divine regulations. In like manner, this commandment denounces the modern passion for ritualism, the dressing up of a simplicity and divine worship, as also the magical virtues ascribed to or even the spatial influences of the Lord's Supper, still more so the use of a crucifix. So also it condemns the neglect of God's worship, the leaving undone, the service which God has commanded. The scriptures have set us bounds for worship to which we must not add and from which we must not diminish. In the application of this principle, we need to distinguish sharply between any substantials and the incidentals of worship. Anything which man seeks to impose upon us as a part of divine worship, if it be not expressly required of us in the scriptures, such as bowing the knee at the name of Jesus, crossing ourselves, and so forth, is to be an abomination. But if certain circumstantials and modifications of worship are practiced by those with whom we meet, even though there be no express scripture for them, they are to be submitted unto by us, providing there are such things as tend to decency and order and distract not from the solemnity and devotion of spiritual worship. That was a wise rule and calculated by Ambrose, if thou wilt neither give offense nor take offense, conform thyself to all the lawful customs of the churches where thou comest, it is the grievous break of this commandment if we neglect any of the ordinances of worship which God has appointed, so too if we engage in the same hypocritically with coldness of affection, wandering of minds, lack of holy zeal, or an unbelief honoring God with our lips while our hearts are far from him. 
This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.